Lovely. So, over the last couple of weeks and until the end of August, this is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about revival, as I was saying sort of earlier when we just started our service. And today, especially, we're thinking about revival with examples from the British Isles. Now, you probably know, because we've heard sort of from Andy last week and from Paul the week before, that has been revivals over many centuries, in many places, with many different people. And if I was going to sort of say all what I know about revival, which isn't loads, we'd be here for more than half an hour. So all I'm trying to say today is that we've got a few pointers to get us started, to get us thinking about the subject of revival and what it's about. Obviously, on our website, there's a good few books that you could look at and a few website links. But I thought I'd show you my favourite four books on revival. You've probably seen some of them before as well. Arthur Wallace, In the Day of Thy Power. Fantastic. Tells you such a lot. Definitely worth getting. I'm going to be saying that about every book, though. Andrew Murray, The Coming Revival. Fantastic. Definitely worth getting. Excellent. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Brilliant. Revival. Definitely worth getting. Of course, Winky Patney, one of my favourite uh, authors. Revival. Definitely worth getting. Because all these books will stir our faith. We'll be thinking, oh, God's done that. God's done this. He did it at that time. He did it through those people. Am I so different from those people? And hopefully, our faith, like I say, will be stirred. I want you to relax. I said it earlier. Because I don't know what one of your favourite subjects at school was, but perhaps it wasn't history. It was for me. I love history and all kinds of things. But today isn't just going to be a history lesson. Not at all. Because history lessons are okay, but we want to be more than just doing that. I don't know how you got, got here today. Did you come in your TARDIS? Because if we're going to, into history, you might need to go into Doctor Who, aren't you? And go in your TARDIS to different places. If you haven't brought your TARDIS with you, that's okay, because I'm still going to be sort of telling you about it and make it understandable. In British history, you're probably aware of lots of significant dates. And some of these you'll look at and you'll say, oh yeah, that year was so-and-so, that year was so-and-so. And you'll look at them and say, oh yeah, I've got a good idea what happened then, like 55 BC, Julius Caesar, uh, 1588, Spanish Armada, all this kind of stuff, 1979, Margaret Thatcher, 2016. What a year we're in already, aren't we? Yeah, it's just, even this week, like Paul was praying earlier, amazing things. This is just a significant year. Hopefully in the next few minutes, 30 minutes maybe, they're not just going to be these dates that you'll look at and you'll think, oh yeah, that's what happened in those years. But there'll be several more that you'll look at and you'll say, I want to remember that because that was something significant that happened in this country. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be thinking about shock and surprise when I'm speaking again. And what we're sort of thinking about today, like I was saying earlier, is just really just a few pointers about what revival is and different people that were involved and what happened and the years and the places. In two weeks' time, when we think about shock and surprise, 
we're going to go into a bit more detail about what the state of the country was like, what God did, what some of the people did, what happened afterwards, how long the revival maybe lasted for. So that's going to be really encouraging, I think. But the thing I've found out, especially this week, that often we're not so shocked and surprised surprised by what God does. In my life, sometimes I'm more shocked and surprised by what the devil does. Think about Nice, Srebrenica, Auschwitz, Syria. We're more shocked and surprised about what the devil does than what God does. But hopefully today, hopefully by reading these books and reading the Bible, you won't be so thinking, wow, how did that happen? But we'll be saying, wow, how did that happen that God, that God did this, that God did that, that God changed a country, a town, a people group, because they were in a mess, but God sorted it out. Sometimes revival comes, I think, by a divine spontaneous combustion. It just pops up all over the place and it's God's hand on it. The spirit, his spirit, is at work. Sometimes revival happens like a a chain reaction, like a, a nuclear bomb almost, where people hear about the revival and then they move to a different place and the revival, God's spirit, follows. And so revivals happen in different places because people are moving around. People see the brilliance of God's holiness and they see the reality of their own sin and the terrible state that their society is in. The bottom line is that revival is brought in by God. God God ushers in revival. And he sends revival as a response to his church, our heart cry for our own state as well as the state of the church. Now, when I got saved, it was 1983, and the first church I went to was Tamworth Elim, and Barry Killett was there, and what a good chap he was. But the thing is, when I went there 30 years ago and a bit, we had two services, one in the morning, one in the evening. We went to both of them every time. We went to the weekly prayer meeting. I went to the weekly youth meeting. I was a youth then. So, so I went to it. I went to the weekly music group practice. I did all these lots of practices, lots of meetings. It was the norm. This is what happened. You're a Christian. You went to lots of meetings. Think about the state of the church now. There's not so many churches, really, that have more than one service on a Sunday. Some churches don't have regular prayer meetings anymore. Some churches, they sort of don't really have house groups or fellowship groups. Much of the church in this country isn't doing well. Quite a few of the churches have either been sold and demolished or sold and turned into flats or Indian restaurants or such things like that. Our church and I mean church with a capital C, the church, is in a bit of a mess in this country, really. We need God. One of my uh, sort of people I've been reading about this week was Christmas Evans, and he was uh, one of the Welsh preachers. 
that did a lot for revival. He talked about revival, and he said this, Revival is God bending down to the dying embers of a fire that is just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts again into flame. And I look at the state of the church in this country and I think, we're in a pretty soulful state. We need God to bend down, to blow into us so that we're coming to life again. Revival is the restoration of the church to a, a, to a great relationship with God after a period of decline. Now, last week when Andy was here and he was speaking about the church in the book of Acts, he was saying, well, is it a revival? Because it was really just being birthed. So I was sort of looking into the history books and I was thinking to myself, well, really, when did the church begin in this country? And lots of people have different ideas, but most people sort of think it was the late 1st century, early 2nd century AD, when sort of people from Rome would come across and sort of tell people about what was happening and how Jesus was sort of changing people. And so it grew and it developed. And so ever since then, since the 2nd century AD, the church has grown and blossomed and had periods of stagnation and bloomed and, and bloomed and blossomed again. And what I want us to do today is look at several of these occasions when the church blossomed and was beautiful, like Jesus' bride. A lot of these you'll know about. And like I say, it's only a quick idea today. So go to the website, have a look at some of the links, web links and books, and you'll be able to read more. Here's the first one then. Wales in 1735. Now this revival lasted about 30 years. And it was mainly these two people. Obviously there's other people involved. And when we look at some of the other names and their pictures, we won't just be thinking, oh, God just chose them. But it's often other people, and not really just in 1735, but a few months before, a few years before, where things are stirring, things are changing in people's hearts. So even though I've just put Howell and Daniel's names there and put their pictures up, there's more people involved. It was really interesting what happened in that year. You can hear about it in two, years, in two weeks' time, rather, or you can look at it yourself. But the thing I want to tell you about it today is that the Christians who got saved at this time, they were called jumpers. Not because it was cold and they needed to put an extra layer on, nothing like that, but because they were so happy that they had to, I can't do it here, but they had to jump for joy. So they jumped for joy a lot. It's all in the history books. You can read it yourself. And so they were called jumpers by people that didn't go to church. They were just saying, oh, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has made a difference in my life. That's a jumper. Yay! That's what happened. They were so thrilled, so glad that Jesus had changed them that they jumped for joy, literally. So they're called jumpers. We're going to see, see this slide a few times. We're going to hear more about Wales in two weeks. But God inspired prayer. People prayed. God answered prayer. And then both society and the church changed. 1735 in Wales. How about this one? England, no. Even if I didn't put their names on, 
you'd look at those pictures and probably you'd know who they were. Amazing men. People that really wanted to know God and follow him. And this, remember, is all on our website, so you don't want to take notes if you like, but all of them, all the slides and a lot of what I'm saying is there already. So we've got George Whitfield and John Wesley. And I've got a few facts. Both of these men travelled a great deal in this country and overseas. When Wesley died, he had travelled 250,000 miles. 1739, how many years ago is that? Quite a lot. Did he have cars? No. Did he have a lovely motorway to make travel easier or go on a plane? No. 250,000 miles walking or on a donkey or on a sort of a ship going over to America. 250,000 miles. He preached 40,000 sermons. And when he died, there was about 140,000 Methodist members and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who'd become Christians because of him. And you might know that they often preached outdoors because they were banned from preaching in, uh, in a pulpit in the parish churches. The powers that be didn't want God to be out and about. So they didn't go into church, but they prayed to the miners, they prayed to the people about, they just talked to the individuals as well as thousands of people at one time. Whitfield preached his last sermon the day before he died, and he was in really poor health. And he said this, I would rather wear out than rust out. That's amazing, isn't it? I would rather wear out than rust out. And you know, he was a passionate preacher. He got very emotional. And so you can imagine that some people in some places with some preachers would just sit, just nod their heads, give a sort of a dignified smile every so often. But in his meetings and in other meetings, (coughs) there was lots of yes and whoa and all of this. It's all in history books. I'm not making it up. Yeah. People reacted because it wasn't just the preacher, it was God doing something through the preacher. God inspired prayer. People prayed. God answered prayer. Both society and the church (coughs) changed. (coughs) Ulster, 1859. So we've got a little map there. So it was a place near Ballymena where this sort of started and it was by four people and it was this person mainly James McQuillan McQuillkin, that's his picture up there and he read an autobiography by George Muller who was a German who came to Bristol and helped orphans and was a real man of faith and prayer and he thought to himself wow, my life isn't like that I worship the same God as George Muller how come my life is so different And so he said, Lord, I need to pray. So he invited a friend, John Wallace, and they prayed together. Then a week or so later, a few days later, they thought two of us praying isn't enough. So they got two more people to pray, Robert and Jeremiah. And so the meetings grew and then more people got to pray and then people started being converted. And it was, there was one person called Henry Grattan Guinness and he was 
sort of a great preacher who ignited the whole thing as well. Well, God ignited it, but he was used by God in it. And maybe 100,000 people in Ulster became Christians at that time. Let's think about the same year, but come closer to home. There's that same thing again, though. God inspired prayer, people prayed, God answered prayer, both society and the church changed. So, closer to home. In 1859, at least one million people became Christians in this country. At least. And there was all sorts of people that became Christians. Here's one person. Now, maybe you haven't heard of Brownlow North. I haven't heard of him until recently. But I had heard of his great-uncle, Lord North, who, in George III's reign, was one of his prime ministers. You can look it all up. It's all in the history books. It's all there. So... He was a very interesting person. I've called him there an aristocratic playboy. His sort of father wasn't happy with him. And so, because of all his actions of being this playboy. And so, he made sure that when he died, his son wouldn't get anything in his will. He was that terrible that his father kind of disowned him, didn't want to know him. But then... He had a dramatic conversion in 1854. And like I've put there, it rocked society. He was a well-known person in the 19th century, Brownlow North. People knew him. And so when he got converted, people thought, wow. But it wasn't just him getting converted, but I've written that he had a sort of John the Baptist style of preaching, where he was very fundamental. Black is black, white is white. You need Jesus. Sin is real. He was like that. And that rocked society even more. So he was a well-known person in the 19th century. And so when he got saved, people got to hear about it. And he was very black and white. And that made me think of other people in our society now. And I've made a list. Maybe you'll think of some others. But people that I think, it's not very nice, but aren't such good people that I wouldn't want to go for a cup of coffee with them or anything. I'm thinking of people like Russell Brand, Jonathan Ross, Jim Davidson. Maybe some nicer people, but still people that are in the public eye. Perhaps Gary Lineker, David Williams, Gary Barlow, Cheryl Cole, Sharon Osbourne. I've made quite a list, and I bet you can think of quite a few people as well that are in the public eye and aren't Christians at the moment. But if God speaks to their heart and changes them, What's going to happen to them? They're going to be changed. They're perhaps going to say, Jesus is my saviour. I've turned away from all this dross, all this rubbish. I've turned to Jesus. Why don't you do the same? That's what happened. It's in the history books. We know it's true. I'm not making it up. Why can't that happen in this year in our country? Why can't people that are in the public eye get to know Jesus, and then they've got a natural megaphone. What they say, people listen to. Why can't it happen this year? There's no reason why it can't happen this year. So in 1859, God inspired prayer. People prayed. God answered prayer. Both society and the church changed. We're getting a bit closer up to time. 
we're into the last century now, the 20th century. So I've got to think about this place, haven't I? Wales, 1904. Now, a lot of people sort of know and have heard of Evan Roberts, and he was perhaps one of the main leaders there, definitely. But there are also other people, just like I was saying earlier, there's people that I'm putting up there, but if you read about it, you'll think, oh, it wasn't just one person that God raised up, but several, or maybe 20 or 30, but God was doing things because he is omnipotent, omniscient. There's a chap called Joseph Jenkins, and who lives south of Aberystwyth, and he arranged meetings, and he was dumbfounded because they were packed. He thought, wow, there's not even just, there's just enough room for me to get onto the pulpit. Can you imagine it here? A hundred or 120 people here, and we're just having to sort of say, coming in, coming in, Jesus wants to change you. Yes, it can happen. And that's what's happening in Wales in 1904. There was also a chap called J.T. Job. And he described a meeting that was in Bethesda, which is north of Wales, as a hurricane. Have you ever been to a Christian meeting that was a hurricane? No. We need revival. We need God to come again and change us. The church isn't really the church. The church is just average, mediocre. God wants us to be vibrant. God wants the church to be alive. Coming back to uh, Evan Roberts, he said these were his main points that he talked about. He said this, we need to confess all known sin, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We need to remove anything in our lives that we are in doubt about or feel unsure about. We need to be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. And we need to publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ. One of his themes was this. Bend the church to save the world. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'm ready for that. Lord, we need revival. Lord, we need you to come and do something in this church, in the church in the town with a capital C. Lord, we need you to change society. But that sounds so hard. God inspired prayer in 1904. People prayed. God answered prayer. Both society and the church changed. I'm going to hear more about it in a couple of weeks' time. Perhaps 100,000 people in Wales in 1904, 100,000 people were converted. Still possible. Has God changed since 1904? Has God changed since all these other years I've said? He's still the same. Here's something a bit closer still. The Outer Hebrides. 1949. Can you see how high up and far out the Outer Hebrides are? How high up and far out the Isle of Lewis is? Now, two weeks ago, Paul was saying, oh, John's probably going to speak about this a little bit. Tiny bit, because there's loads of other things to say as well. But it's all in the history books. It's all in these books. So be encouraged Read a book, have a look, you'll see what sort of things were happening. This was the chap, Duncan Campbell, 1898 to 1972. 
He was a man of God. He was a Gaelic speaker. And he went to the Isle of Lewis because two Gaelic-speaking sisters who were in their 80s had been praying a lot for revival. And they knew that if they invited Duncan Campbell, God would do something. He wasn't interested. He said, no, I'm not going there. I mean, I think it was Sky or Edinburgh, something like that. I'm not going all those... So they prayed about it a bit more, sent him another invitation. Come on, Duncan, come and join us. God says, God says he's going to change society. God changes the church. Lots of people will be converted. Guess what he said? No. I'm happy here. I'm in Edinburgh or Sky, I've forgotten which one. I'm not going to go. It took three invitations before Duncan Campbell went to the Isle of Lewis. Aren't we grateful that he did? All the different things that happened there. And one of the things he said, we've heard this before a couple of weeks ago, and it's on our website. Revival is not the church filled with people. It is the church filled with God. God is more attractive than we are. If we've got God in our lives, people will see a difference. If we're just similar to all our friends, where it's mainly me, my and I, that people see, why should they come and be interested in what we're doing if we're just another version of what they are? And everyone has problems, don't they? And they just think, oh, just another person. But if we're distinct, because we're saying, God, be in my life, change me, come to me, then that'll make a difference. It'll be a gigantic contrast when people see Jesus in us, rather seeing us in us. Interestingly, and I'm only saying this because we have quite a few Wyomers here today, Duncan Campbell died on the School of Evangelism. (laughs) Yeah, he was speaking in Lausanne in Switzerland, and he died in 1972, and he was lecturing on the School of Evangelism there, and he died. That's amazing, isn't it? It's all in the history books. Read it for yourself. That would be great. Now, you've heard all these things and you've been thinking, great. John's looking like he's excited about it. And I really am. But there's something more important I want to tell you. And it's the big one. So, have you got any trumpets with you? Can you give me a fanfare? After three... One, two, three. <laughs> That's a bit half-hearted. Let's do that again. One, two, three. Da, 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 da. Thank you. Now the fanfare is because this is the big one. We've heard about all these other places, all these other years, all these other people. But I want to show you where, a fa- where not a fanfare happened, but where a revival happened. I've put some pictures on. Where's this? Can you see any of the, do any of these places look familiar? Have any of you been to any of these places? It's Nuneaton. It's Nuneaton. The top left. That's where the Prince of Wales Theatre was in 1905. This is what happened, 1905. It's not just in history books, 
It's in the local newspapers. And recently I've been looking at lots of local newspapers in the Neaton Library to find out about the revival in the Neaton. Thousands of people were saved in the Neaton in 1905. Yeah, it's really happened. It's in the newspapers and the history books. So there was a, used to be a theatre in Bongate called the Prince of Wales Theatre. Then it became the Hippodrome, but it was knocked down in 1968. But there's some buildings there. Revival took place in that theatre. I'm going to tell you more about it in a few minutes. Uh, on the corner of Stratford Street and Abbey Street, now there's some shops. There used to be a Wesleyan church there. It was knocked down in the 60s. 1905, there was a revival. The URC church, bottom left. That used to be called the Congregational Church. 1905, there was a revival. Manor Court Baptist Church, 1905, there was a revival. And then the uh, Methodist Church on the corner of Edward Street and Coton Road, it was bombed in the First World War, 1941. So the building like that isn't the one that was there, but that was the location. There was a revival in the Neaton in 1905. Fantastic! If God was doing it all those years ago in this place where we live and where we love, can God do it again? Definitely. God is alive. God is not different. In October, it will be 30 years since I started studying at Bible College. And I was there for three years. And when I was sort of, uh, in the first week that I was there, I introduced myself to one of the lecturers and said, oh, I'm John from Addiston, near Nuneaton, because Addiston's only a small place. So you say, oh, big place, Nuneaton. And he says, ah, Nuneaton, that's a great revival town. And it stuck with me. I'd never heard anyone say anything else about it until last year. But this chap who was at the Bible College and was lecturing there, he knew about it. And I thought, I need to find out about that. I want to be encouraged, and I want to encourage all of you. So the plan is this. I'm going to be looking at lots of these things. I've brought quite a few. But what I'm going to do is put them on our website. Because then you don't have to go to the library and spend time looking on the microfilm, turning it round. But you can just go on our website and be encouraged that God was working in all these other places, but in Nuneaton. In 1905, the church was changed. Here's some pictures. So here's the theatre. So uh, you can see where it is. This building, there, is still here. But all of these have been knocked down. This was a pub called the Hollybush. And if you notice, that's where Marcus Jones has got his uh, constituency office, the MP. So all of that was a seat of revival. 1,500 people would uh, regularly go to this theatre and listen and get converted. And there was 100 or 200 people in the choir and string orchestras. It's all on the newspapers. It's all exciting. It's all what happened. This is amazing. Special trains were put on so that people could come to Nuneaton. Because so much was happening in Nuneaton, Nuneaton, our town, the town we love, that special trains were put on so people could come along. Because you can't, in like 100 years ago, just get in your car. People didn't do it. So you could either walk or go on your bike. No, special trains were put on so people could come here and see what God was doing. These were the papers. So these are some of the ones I've been reading about. And there's our website address, just so you can think, oh yeah, I'm going to read that. This is the chap, Reverend Roderick M. Kedwood. Now, 
I know about what happened afterwards because he came, became an MP and he went to Hall and did other things. But at this time, he was an unknown, he was young. But God put something in his heart, a spark, and it ignited when he came to Nuneaton. Thousands of people got saved in Nuneaton in 1905. He was one of the people that were instrumental in doing it. But there were others. You can read the newspapers or read our website in the next sort of few weeks and you'll, follow, you'll find out about it. What if? I like asking questions like that. What if? What if revival doesn't occur before 2060? Now, I've thought that's kind of for our lifetime, but it isn't. For everybody, I know. But for most of us, just to be blunt, we'll be dead by 2060. I should imagine. What if we don't see revival in our lifetime? We're sort of getting all excited about it, saying, yeah, it's happened here, it's happened there, it even happened in our town. There's two things I want us to think about. We still need to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Even if we don't see revival. Following Jesus wholeheartedly. And we still need to be a blessing rather than wanting a blessing. Here's 16 Christians, very quickly, that I think probably didn't see revival in their lifetime as such. But all of these Christians, you'll just think, wow, they did such a lot for God. They went for it. They lived wholeheartedly. They wanted to be a blessing to other people. And there's the other lot. Uh, probably all these people didn't really see revival, but they lived like revival was in their hearts. I want to read quickly a passage of scripture. And it's 2 Kings 4, 1 to 6. You might have heard the story already. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Tell me what you have in the house. Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbours. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. Here's my question to you. There's an empty jar. We all have a jar. We've all got a life. We've all got a jar. Can you give God an empty jar? What will God do with your empty jar? God needs us to have empty jars. He must increase, I must decrease. Are we brave enough to say to God, here I am, 
take me and use me, or don't use me at all, I don't care, but Lord, be glorified. Let your kingdom be extended. Let your love be shining through to other people. God is calling us to make a difference. He's calling us to be holy. And we have an invitation from the Holy Spirit. Let me change you. Revival is God's initiative. But he always uses people like you and me. Can you hear God whispering to you now? He says, listen. Be holy. Be ready. Be radical. Surrender and obey. So we've heard lots of things, dates, times, people, places, and we know God has done it in this town. There's a well of revival in this town. Can we cry out to God again, today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and say, Lord, will you visit us again? Will you change us? We want to be ready for you. So we're going to be praying just now and then we're going to respond to what we've been saying and thinking about and saying, Lord, yes, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are alive and that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. So let's just pray now. Lord, you speak to us. We want to listen to you. Thank you so much for Lord, for what you've done in different places, in different times, as a response to our stupidity really as a church, not giving you our all. Lord, will you come and change us? Not so that we're glorified. Not so that Nuneaton becomes a well-known place again and people come to to, uh, Nuneaton and we're proud of it. Lord, we want you glorified in this town. Lord, we want you glorified in your church in this town. Lord, we want you glorified in this particular church in this town, Lord, and in our lives. So we ask you, Lord, to be glorified through us. Come and stir us, Lord, and help us, we pray. Amen.